something in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and I only want to lift up the first four words of verse 1. I know it might take you a while to get to Genesis and then get to chapter 1 so give you a chance to do that. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 clause A. In the beginning God. You can sit back down. That's it. That's all I have. In the beginning, God. In my quest to do better, as I have lifted up in this theme in the past few weeks, Lord, I want to do better in this message I want to talk about help me to know your name help me to know your name in the early worship hour I made reference to the British theologian John Hick who's written a book entitled God has many names in which Hick contends that whatever name we even discover in the sacred text is still limited in trying to define who God is. In fact, Hick goes on through the book to suggest that no matter which religion you engage and its expression or definition of who God is, it's still too limited because God is so vast, so wide, and in the expression that God gives to his creation, so favorable in the sense of what he does for creation, we could never find in the human language words sufficient enough to define who God truly is. We spend a lifetime trying to reason as to whether or not whether God was and whether God will be and even wrestle with where the God is. But when you begin to wrestle with Genesis chapter 1, there is a clear indication that God always was, and God always is, and God will always be. There is the eternality of God which transcends time. God is not bound by time, but God instead is unlimited when it comes to time. What I want to lift up is this idea of knowing God's name, knowing God's name. Not just John Hick, who sort of introduces us to the significance of not just the names of God, but what it means to know that name. But the 17th century philosopher Soren Kierkegaard says that to know God is not only the most intrinsic thing that we can encounter, but it is the only thing that will let us know that God is real by knowing God personally, wrapped in what he calls a leap of faith. Stop stepping out, launching out into the deep to trust God even when you can't trace God to believe God even when I have never seen God. In fact, it's a wrestle between two passages of scripture that one finds themselves housed between. The first passage is John chapter 20 where Thomas wrestles with the idea of knowing God, defining for us that he will not proclaim that there is a risen savior unless he can see God for himself unless he can put his hands in the nailed scarred side unless he can see the nail prints in the hands of jesus says thomas i'm just not going to believe that the lord has risen and yet that sandwich on the other side to a passage in which jesus converses with peter and other disciples while they are fishing one evening and they come back and they have fished, says the text, all night long and have caught nothing. When they get back to shore, Jesus says, go back, but this time launch out into the deep. And Peter says, 
Lord, we have fished all, like, all night long and have caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, we will go back out into the deep. And the story contends that once they go back out, because they were obedient to the word of God, they had met God in a very personal encounter by engaging in belief in the very words that God had spoken through the Christ. They gathered fish so much so in abundance that they had to call for help to bring that which was in the boat back to shore. In fact, they had more than enough tipping the boat over. One can say that I refuse to believe God unless I see God. One can argue that I don't have to see him, but I know him because I trust the word to which God has spoken. Kierkegaard may be right in which he says that we have to take a leap of faith into God because you may not ever see the face of God, but if you are discerning enough, you can see the hand of God you can witness the movement of God, and most importantly, as Karl Barth would say, you can experience the presence of God moving within and among yourselves when you are sensitive to the voice of God. No matter what words we try to use to express who God is, it just is not adequate enough. In fact, it may be better said by those who have no eloquency and those who possess no particular academic formula in describing God, but those who use simple terminology to suggest that who God is and what God is and how God moves in the midst of their space. They define God ancestry-wise in terminology that seems so simple but yet profound unto us when we listen to the, rever to the reverberations of its verbiage. For example, they would tell us because they had absolutely no access to what it means to walk into a hospital building and experience the presence of a physician. But working in the fields day in and day out, their bodies would suffer a number of illnesses, but they would have to lie down and stretch out in a belief in faith and describe God as the doctor in the hospital room, the doctor who could come by and touch your body. You could never actually go into the space that is officially called the healing station, but God will come to you. He will stop by where you are and will be your doctor in the sick room, lifting you up and transitioning from who you were in a space of sickness to now a space of wholeness. We may not have the elocution to suggest that we know God in theological terms, but when you've been touched by the hand of God in your moment of sickness, it doesn't take a lot of terminology to find that God is the one who lifted me up from the sick bed of my despair. And if you have been there before, you certainly know that God is a healer, has become your doctor in the sick room. That's all they knew. They knew that they couldn't afford a lawyer to stand for them in the courtroom. And so they would say that God will be your lawyer in the courtroom. He would make sure that justice would come to you where you were. When they were hungry, even after laboring in the fields and food would not be plentiful in the cupboards, they would recognize that that was the time when they had to call on God. And so they would holler that he would be bread to the hungry and water to the thirsty. If you've never had to wonder how you would make ends meet and you had to trust God to make sure that you would have bread on the table, you know how God can make bread come in the midst of the moment in which you had no idea how bread would show up. You come to know how God will feed you when you are thirsty and you may not necessarily be thirsty for water, but I've known some folk who've been thirsty for peace and some thirsty for comfort, and some thirsty for power, and some thirsty for endurance, and God supplied the thirst, quenching the thirst, and you couldn't explain it. All you knew that God, would, he showed up and gave you exactly what you needed. 
if that doesn't make you shout enough, how about when they would tell us that they certainly didn't know how they would get through some days and how they would get over, but they said God would be your bridge over troubled waters. He would be the one who would take you by the hand and lead you over in the storms of life and make sure that whatever was troubling your spirit would come to a common space. And how about whenever death would occur in your context? And they certainly did not really understand how to express it. Sometimes it would be so overwhelming that they would seem friendless, but yet they would say God would be your friend when there were no friends. You don't know that until you've exhausted all of the friends around you or they've turned their backs on you or they've let you go or you can't contact them when you call them. And yet when you call on God, they say that God will be your friend. Unlike their elementary but yet profound description, we are introduced to what we call in the English language God in the first verse of Genesis chapter 1. In those opening four words, in the beginning God, the English form God, comes out of the Hebrew word Elohim, from which it means the strong one, the mighty one, the almighty, the strong tower. Right off of the bat, the writer wants us to understand that as he depicts the creator of all things, he leaves no room for error, but he says that God is the not only creator, but the strong tower the mighty one, the almighty one, the one who not only fights all of your battles, but God is the one who transcends time, who was and is and shall always be. In knowing Elohim, the strong one, the very first name we're introduced in the Bible to in reference to God, it introduces us not only to the timelessness of God, but the triumphant nature of who God is. It lets us know about the person, the purpose, and the plan of God. The person of God who is intimate. That's what Kierkegaard was trying to tell us, that to know God means that you need to know him personally, which means that we must engage in a very deep conversation so that I don't just know about God, but I know God for myself. That's what gives relevance to people's suggestion that God is only an abstract thought out there. But when you have known God for yourself, when you've had to walk with God and God walk with you, when you've had no one else to trust but God, when God was the only shoulder you had to lean on, the only name you could call on, the only person you knew who would undergird and give you strength, that became a very personal God to you. That's what makes me shout about this, that God is personal because you don't know like I know what the Lord has done for me. It's personal. And in this personal nature, in the beginning, God, Elohim, the strong one, the mighty one, the one commands us to know his name. Listen to what Psalm 8.1 says. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all of the earth. No matter how many names I know, and we may know some names that are mighty powerful, some names that can be spoken, some names that can change situations, some names that can open some doors, some names that can shut some doors, but none of those names will surpass the name of God. They cannot get you out of sickness, it cannot get you out of jail in terms of your own personal imprisonment. It can open doors. The name of God brings comfort, brings peace, brings power, brings whatever you need. But to get to know that name, says the psalmist, it is the greatest name in all of the earth. And if you want me to tell you, you need to get to know who he is in a very personal in a very compelling way. And that says that God secondly compels us to praise his name. Psalm 52 verse 9. I will praise you Lord forever for what you have done. Now some would argue that you 
so just simply praise God for who God is. But even if I know that God is, I need to know personally that God is. For example, it's hard for me to praise God as the healer when I've never needed to be healed. Or it'd be hard for me to praise God as a way maker when I've never had to have God make a way for me. But when I've had to have God to make a way, and when I've had to have God to open some doors, and when I've had to have God to heal my body, then the praise is easy for me to do because I know who the healer is. I know who the provider is. I know who the sustainer is. Have you ever had a space where you know that if it had not been for God who actually kept your mind from losing your mind. So when you think about God now and when you're in worship and folk might give the expression as they look at you that it just does not, they believe, take all that to celebrate God. Notice what I said. They believe because they don't know what you know and how God has worked in the middle of your space. And I'm just trying to tell you, when you know God personally, he compels us to praise him for what he has done for you. And I don't know everything that God has done for you, but I know exactly what God has done for me. And that's the reason why if somebody decides to shout, clap their hands, speak in tongues, run around the building. It is not for me to say that it doesn't take all that for them to do that because I don't know what God has delivered them out of. I don't know how God has sustained them through the trial. I don't know how God has opened doors for them, but I do celebrate with them that they know that God has done something for them and they are required and they will. Nobody has to coach them. Nobody has to inspire them. When you know what God has done for you, just to mention and just to think of how good God is will bring a praise out of your mouth. But then God challenges us to trust him. Proverbs 18.10 says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous, they run to find safety in God. In other words, you have had to have been in a predicament where all of your options were exhausted. And your back is surely square against the wall. And there is no way out of the storm. And the only thing you can do is trust God. You can find the rootage of that in the Exodus story. As they are leaving Egypt, all they can hear is the horse's steps in their background that Pharaoh is getting closer. In fact, they begin to cry out, Moses, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness. We would have been better off if you had left us in Egypt. And Moses looks to God and says, what is it that we need to do? Because these are your people, but they are wearing me out. And God says, all you need to do is stretch out your hand. Look at what's in your hand. There's a rod in your hand. Stretch out and trust me to make a way out of this dark moment. And when Moses raises his hands, the Bible says God sends a wind and the wind makes a highway through the Red Sea and they are able to cross over on dry ground all because God in his righteousness challenges them to trust him when there's no way out. And what happens when you don't know a way out? You got to run and find wherever God's rest is. And when you have found where God's rest is, no matter what storm arises, God will bring you the rest that you need even when the storm is raging. Here are the disciples out on the sea and the storm has raged, and the disciples says, Master, do you not care that we are going to perish? But God knows through his son Jesus, who's in control, because remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and Genesis 1 says that God created the waters to which would separate the earth from the heavens, 
And if God created the waters, and verse 2 says that God's spirit was moving across the deep of the earth, and if God's spirit by way of wind is moving, God is in control of the water which creates the raging of the sea and the winds which gives its philosophy to move from side to side. And what God was trying to say to the disciples was, ain't no need of tripping, I got this under control. I'm the one who not only made the water, but I control the wind. And Jesus comes up from beneath and stands on deck and looks at the wind and says, peace be still. And the wind bows down to the command of God. Why? Because even that which is made in the earth knows who its creator is. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that God has revealed God's self in all of creation so that man cannot stand before God at judgment and say, I never knew who you were. In other words, Paul says that you can look at trees and tell there's got to be a creator somewhere. You can look at the animal kingdom and all of its species and suggest there's got to be a God somewhere. You can look at the heavens even in its clapping of the hands to create cloud and thunder and got to suggest there's got to be a God somewhere. And who tells the seasons of the world to change? Who tells the wind to go east and go west and north and south? Who is it that tells the stars when to come out and rotate the earth on its axles? Who is it that tells the moon when to shine and whenever God speaks the moon comes out and creates its illumination? I'm talking about God in control of all things asking us to trust him because if he got the power to do all that I'm going to put my little life in the hands of a God who can take care of every aspect of our existence. Here it is, in the beginning, God. Trust him even when you can't trace him. Psalm 910 says that those who know your name will put their trust in him, in God, in Elohim, the strong one, the mighty one. Here's what I came to tell you. The God that we serve get to know his name because God specializes in creation. When you pick up verse 2 in chapter 1 of Genesis, it says, And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Here's a hint. Do you not know that God can take what you cause to be chaotic? and create out of your chaos. Are you not aware, and you probably already have experienced it, the mess that we have made of our lives, and yet God in his moving of the spirit has created out of the mess, and creating out of the mess something to be proud of and something to be thankful for. When we have messed life completely up, God takes the mess that we bring him and create a miracle out of the mess. You and I are nothing more than walking miracles because of the messes we've made, and yet God doesn't allow us, won't let us stay in the mess, but would take whatever mess we bring to God and create miraculous out of it. I would throw away the mess. I would get rid of it. But God takes who we are, where we are, what we are and create, create what he desires for us to be. That's the revealing of a personal God who took a personal interest in me and you that he might show us I not only know every dimension of who and what you are, but I have a plan for you. The plan not to harm you, but the plan to bless and expand you. And I won't leave you in the ditch where you've tossed yourself in, 
but we might be living witnesses today how God has reached in the ditch, in the dungeon, in the darkest spaces of life and gave us his hand of grace and mercy and second chance and brought us out. We are sitting here this morning in the sanctuary knowing that if we took a moment to take a flashback from where we used to be several years ago or even just a while ago last week, it was God's gracious hand that reached to where we were and pulled us out and reconstructed our lives because God is an expert in reconstructing what we have messed up. You think about this, what our lives would be right now if it hadn't been for the intervening hand of God and the God who understood who we were and created us and we've argued and messed up his creation, yet he takes us the way we are and recreate us. Change our mind, change our life, the habits we used to have, the places we used to go, the things we used to do, we don't do anymore because we've had a personal encounter with a God who cared enough about me to change my life. God reveals himself as a personal God. But that's that's, that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg because God also relates creation. In relating to his creation, God lets us know by way of revelation that he's not far away. Have you ever had one of those moments where you were in a situation and you knew you couldn't see the presence, but you could feel the presence? You couldn't see it, but you something, somebody was there comforting you, had your back in that moment where you could sense that I wasn't in this thing by myself. That's God relating to creation to let us know. And God is so mighty being the strong one that God can use anything, anybody to bring that comfort, to bring that presence that I need in a situation where you know that if it hadn't been for help that you are doomed and yet someone comes along, don't know you, don't know your name, never seen you before, here's a good one, never seen you before, don't know who you are, they came along, gave you a hand and when you looked around to give your thanks, nobody was there. That's God relating to creation that I told you, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The protecting hand of God. You can almost see that disaster is right before you and you are in the mix of it and you cannot explain it. But however it happened, you ended up on the right side of the equation. Because God relates to his creation. I'm also a believer that God can handle whatever mechanism we utilize and think that it can only be controlled by human hands. For example, you have lost control of that vehicle and you are on your way out to a revere somewhere or to hit a tree and somehow we say miraculously and that's what it is, the car missed a tree and we ended up back on paved ground. I'm talking about God relating to who we are. Or you are there in the midst of a dark moment of sickness and you can just hear. You're supposed to be out under anesthesia, but you can hear physicians contemplating among themselves. I just don't know if this is going to work because it doesn't look like it's going to be completing the surgery. And yet you can also hear a voice telling you, be not dismayed, whatever the time, God will take care of you. I, I got church folk this morning. I ain't got no real Christian folk who have had an experience with God relating to God. But then in doing that, God releases, in the beginning, God releases Elohim, his promise. Verse 3 says that God in verse 2, not only has his spirit hovering upon the darkness, and he's the creator because the earth is formless and void. It has no structure. And God moves with his own hand to construct. But verse 3 says, God said. God is not only a creator, but God is also a creator who communicates. Grandmama say he walks with me, 
but he also talks with me. You ever had one of those moments where you were about to do something and you couldn't see? You didn't see an image? But you heard a voice tell you, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. You were about to go in a car and ride with someone who was sketchy, and you could hear the voice say, don't get in that car. You were about to make a decision about something, and the voice said, don't do it. It's not for you. And then later, after hearing about the outcome, you can hear the other voice asking, aren't you grateful that you had an ear to hear the voice of God? Because God communicates. He speaks to us if we are willing to have a listening ear. This text says that when God saw that dark chaos, he looked there and he said, let there be light. You've had a dark moment. You've had darkness in your life. And if it hadn't been for God speaking life. But here's the glory. I need to know the name of God because Paul says in Romans that I am an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And if I'm connected to both God and Christ and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I not only have the triune nature at work in me, but I also have access to all that Christ has access to. And so if God can speak and light comes in the darkness, then the text is telling me, God says, I've granted you because you are part of me power to speak and something has got to happen. Read Romans chapter 4. And Paul said, you got to learn how to speak. To call those things that be not as if they already are. Speak. And one of our challenges is we don't speak. We look at chaos and we let it remain where it is. But you are under the rubric of a God who gave you authority to speak. And to tell that whatever it is, it's time for you to go get out of my life. This is not where you belong. This is not the address to which you will occupy. And you can tell it in the name of Jesus. You have got to be gone. But that don't make you shout enough. Then God is not only a God who creates and the God who communicates, but verse 31 says, after, and here it is, Elohim is mentioned not only some 2,600 times throughout the Old Testament, but 32 times in Genesis chapter 1 alone. God said, God made, God spoke to. Watch this. But verse 31 says, God celebrates. It says in verse 31 that when God saw all that he had made, I told him this morning, I'll tell you, you really don't need to buy a lot of books to help your self-esteem. All you got to do is just read verse 31 in Genesis chapter 1. That will help your self-esteem. Look what it says. When God saw that all he had made, behold, it was very good. Some kind of good. Some kind of fine. If you got problems with self-identity, if you got problems with self-esteem, come here, come here for a moment and introduce yourself to Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 and then remember every time I look at the mirror, I am who God made me and because God made me this way, God was happy when he made me and therefore if God looks at me and said I made something good, look at yourself and start telling yourself I am some kind of good, I'm some kind of good looking, doesn't matter how tall, how short, how wide, how thin you are, God made you and because God made you God said whatever I put together it is good God does not make junk but look what it says he made it he not only made it but he behold and looked that it was good and when he looked at his good he sat back and rested and said there it is right there that's all the creation that's all I need right there because a part of God's purpose in creating is to create creation that would reflect who he is 
And part of our problem is we don't want to remember that God says, I expect for you to tell folk just how good I have been in your life and in your space of existence. So when we look at this word Elohim, it's in its singular but yet plural sense because when it goes to the plural, it may attach itself to the word El Elyon which means that God is the most high God. In fact, when Abraham had won victory over five different kings in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, came out and blessed Abraham because of his victory. The most high God gave him victory through the words of Salem, or the king of Salem, Melchizedek, which says unto us that God blesses us to be victorious every single time. And if that's not enough, the New Testament says in Romans chapter 8, I am more than a conqueror through Christ. Do you understand what that means? In fact, read the previous line of the verse. In all things, we are more than conquerors. Not in some stuff. In other words, in the economy of God, there are no losers. And no situation is a loss. That's the hardest thing for me to, to understand in my own Christian walk, that there are no lost situations in the economy of God. When it doesn't work out the way that I think it should work out and the way that I wanted it to work out, I'm disappointed with God that he didn't make it work out the way that I wanted. And God keeps trying to tell me there are no losses in my kingdom. In fact, if you were smart, you learned a lesson from what you think is a loss that you never would have gained otherwise. Y'all got quiet on me on that one. Here it is. Are you willing to admit if it hadn't been for me, experiencing what I might define as a human loss, some things I would not have learned, but because I learned it, it's not a loss, it's a victory. And because it's not a loss, it's victorious because it's a lesson taught to me by God again in reference to who God is. But not just El Elyon, how about El Shaddai? El Shaddai, the God who without question is the most almighty God. Genesis chapter 17. Here it is. Here's the shouting point of this. This El Shaddai God shows up to Abraham at the age of 99 and makes Abraham a promise. And the promise is you're going to bring forth and have a son. Abraham is chuckling. Hold up, God. Now, wait a minute now. Every, all of my stuff has died. It, it's, it's been dead for a long time. 99. And God says to Abraham in that 99th year of his life, remember, I am the Lord Almighty. And I'm making you a promise that this time, next year, you're going to see how true I am. And you know the story. Abraham goes to tell his wife, Sarah, and Sarah says, you must be kidding me. In the tent door, laughing. And the angels are hanging out in the background asking Sarah, why are you laughing at us? You don't think that we're telling you the truth? And Sarah said, you must have lost your mind also. There's no way in the world at this age of 92 that I'm going to have a child. A year later... El Shaddai delivered what El Shaddai said he would do, and Isaac is born. Here's what God is telling you. Just because my answer is delayed doesn't mean it's denied. I have a time frame to which I will give you because in the process of time, I got to prepare you to receive the blessing that I have in store for you. What would happen if God gave us stuff too early, we're too immature, we're not yet ready to receive what God has? That's the reason why sometimes it takes a while for God to answer the prayer because it's almost like a chessboard. God has to maneuver people and situations and to get us prepared to be able to walk into the blessing 
blessing, but oh, when he opens that door, we are excited that the prayer has been answered. And that's the reason why when God answers the prayer, I'm not only going to shout, but even on the way to the answered prayer, I got to shout and thank God because I know that God is working all things together for the good. All right, I got one more dim gun. He not only creates and God said, go back to Genesis chapter 1, and God saw, which means that El Rohi, God's got eyes all over the place. God sees everything. In the garden, chapter 3 of Genesis, uh, when they had, uh, most people don't understand theologically, it's not that they partook of the forbidden fruit. That's really not the issue. The issue is they disobeyed the command of God. Don't touch the tree. See, all of us hang out with forbidden fruit. We're forever eating forbidden fruit. But the challenge is we experience the consequence of the fruit because we disobey. Have you ever noticed you eat something that's not good for you? It may make your stomach tear up, but it still exists. It doesn't go anywhere. But the consequence that makes you ill is because you simply disobey knowing that if I eat that, I am going to be sick. I'll give you an idea. Uh, because I suffer with high cholesterol, I don't anymore, but I did, but because I take medication, my medication says I can never have any more grapefruit. Now, I love grapefruit. And as tempting as it is, when I go to the store to get myself a grapefruit, to drink some grapefruit juice, I already know in the back of my mind, you got one or two choices. You can stay away from that grapefruit and get prepared to celebrate another day's journey, or you can engage that grapefruit, and you don't know what's going to happen to your heart when you do that. Now, I've already conditioned myself. I don't even look at the grapefruit anymore. I don't look at the grapefruit juice. I just already know I'm not going to have it. It's not part of me. It's not part of my life because I'm too afraid of the consequence of what's going to happen. Here it is. They thought that in the consequence that they could hide from God. I told you, God got eyes everywhere. And Genesis 3 says that God comes walking in the cool of Eden's evening and just raised a question, Adam, where art thou? Now, God already knew exactly where they were. In fact, when they said we, rid, we ran and hid ourselves because we were afraid, God says, who told you that you were naked? God's eyes. And even in our sinful state, when we think that we're doing it behind closed doors, hidden from everybody else, it ain't hidden from God. I cringe when I think about, you do too, you just won't admit it, you shall reap what you sow. I don't know about you, but I celebrate that doesn't happen to me all the time. You do too, you just haven't got there yet, but you, you do, you do. Because if we uh, sowed all, I mean, we reaped all that we sowed. Close up shot. But here it is. When God looks at him in the garden with those eyes. Not judgment in its completion but judgment with a sprinkle, or as grandmama said, with a pinch of mercy and grace. Now there's a consequence, you shall bear pain in childbirth. There's a consequence, you will make your living from the fruit of the ground. But here's the mercy and grace. God prepared skins from a slain animal to cover their nakedness. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad God covers my nakedness. Because God sees that my nakedness cannot be exposed because if it is, you wouldn't like me. You wouldn't let me stand at this desk anymore. And if I saw yours, I wouldn't want you in the pew anymore. 
But grace and mercy covers all of that. Your nakedness and my nakedness and gives us life one more time. That's why I serve Elohim, the God who is strong because he's a God who is strong enough to handle my failures. And he can handle yours as well. Well, let me close with this. It says that not only did God say, but it says that God called. God called. The Bible says in verse 5 that he called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. God called. Karl Barth says that we can only know God through the revelation of God's word. In other words, Barth says that you might look at the trees and see that God is evident in creation, but you'll never know God until you first hear the call of God in the word. Here's what Barth is trying to tell us, and I think we might want to leave this place today celebrating I never knew how much God loved me until I heard the call in the word. And the call suggested that God looked beyond the fault of a sinner and saw the need. He did something that the Pharisees could not do as they watched Jesus sit with sinners and publicans, people who were considered the downgrade or those who were marginalized, or those who were disenfranchised, Jesus would sit with them and eat with them, violating all of their own customary rules. And Jesus says, I sit with them because they're real people. There are people who recognize that they haven't crossed every T, and they haven't dotted every I, but they are humble enough to still let the king of kings sit in the space where they are. I want to invite you to embrace the God of your salvation because God will come wherever you are and sit with you. And even in what you think is the most despicable, darkest place of your existence, I got to already inform you he's already there. Not only did his eyes see you there, and not only is he trying to communicate with you while you were there, but he's even created a miracle out of the mess that you find yourself in. He wants to reveal who he is and relate to you where you are and then restore you that you can without question testify I'm not talking about what someone told me about God. But I'm testifying what I know for myself. My parents' testimony will, will go to a point. My friend's testimony about God will go to a point but nothing will substitute what I know about God personally for myself. And that goes back to my opening statement. That is what Hicks was also trying to recommend in his book, that even Christians, in their language of describing God, even Christian language is too limited. You can't suggest that God is not any place else other than the Christian realm. You are trying to restrict God in your box. When Hicks says God is so wide and vast and love doesn't specify a particular people, it transcends all spaces of human existence. And you should be glad, I know I am, that love didn't care about how I looked, where I was, what I was doing. Love lifted me when nothing else could help. Love lifted me. All of our testimonies should begin, I was sinking deep in sin, 
Far from the peaceful shore, very badly, stainly deep within, sinking to rise no more, but the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters he lifted me, now safe am I. I'm shouting, I'm happy, I'm overwhelmed with joy because I'm now safe in his arms. Because that's the kind of God we serve, the mighty one, the almighty God, the strong one, Elohim. And that's why Samuel's name ends with L. Daniel's name ends with L. The city Beth-El ends with L. It's because they are attached to the almighty strong one who is suggesting to us that when you know the name of God, doesn't matter what storm, doesn't matter what challenge, doesn't matter what issue, doesn't matter what circumstance. When you know the name of God, you can call on that name. And not only dependency can be experienced, but deliverance comes from that name. That's what the drug, the drug user would say. I, I'm no longer on crack because I met the God who delivers from my disease. That's, that's what the person who was a thief would say. I finally met the God who delivered me from thievery. But here it is, the lost person, period. Got to cry out. I met the God who really brings salvation. And I'll close with this. Salvation is not just an act for eternity. But salvation can be experienced now. I am grateful that God has sealed my journey for eternity. My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Hallelujah. I'm shouting on that. But right now, Lord, can I have a glimpse of that salvation? And that's what God gives us right now. A glimpse of salvation. Deliverance here. Deliverance there, healing here, healing there, miracle here, miracle there, provision here, provision there. We're getting glimpses of what's in eternity until the moment when God takes us to that space where Job says the wicked ceases from troubling and our soul, that weary soul, will finally find some rest. But I'm looking forward to that city, says the text of Revelation 22, where God's going to wipe away all tears from my eyes. No more death, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more heartaches. Here it is, shouting, because the former things have passed away. That's the hope that I have in this God who created not only the earth, but all of creation within it. Get to know his name. It'll change your life. You will never be the same from this day forth. Father, in Jesus' name.